Well, good morning. If you're a guest with us, my name is Raymond Johnson. I serve as one of the pastors here. For all of our members, regular attenders, something that you might not know, uh, but during the holiday season we like to remind people of, is that we actually open our home to people who aren't traveling for the holiday. So if you're not traveling for the holiday and you'd like to eat Thanksgiving dinner uh, with some other people, we'd love for you to be uh, with us on that day. Uh, I cannot promise that my kids will not crawl all over you. In fact, I can almost guarantee it. Um, But we would love for you to be with us. And if you would like to join us, all you need to do is just let me know or let my wife know. She's down here on the front row. We'd love to be able to have you with us and just enjoy that day of food and fellowship as we look forward to our time together on Thanksgiving. Now, if you have your Bible, I invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of John. Our time together this morning will be greatly helped and far more enjoyable if you follow along in a copy of God's Word. If you do not have a Bible with you, you should be able to find one underneath the seat in front of you or near you, and you should be able to turn that to somewhere around page 886 to find the Gospel of John. I'm going to begin reading in just a moment in John chapter 2, verse 23. John writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he speaks to us with the same authority as of Jesus Christ himself were here speaking to us today. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear it sound. But you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and the people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us as we turn your attention our attention to your word. Lord, we ask that you would help us to focus now. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear as we turn our attention to this word that we might see Christ perhaps for the first time if we are not a Christian in the room or be driven into deeper faith and deeper repentance if we are a Christian. We ask, Father, in this time that you would do the good work of redeeming grace and cause 
some to be born again, that you would remove the heart of stone and insert the heart of flesh. And Father, we ask that you would do the good work of sanctification, gradually conforming us into the image of Christ as we turn our attention to your word if we are Christians, that we might be made into his likeness. And we ask all of this in the name of our God who has revealed himself to us as Father, Son, and Spirit, we pray. Amen. Amen. What is faith? What is repentance? How can someone be born again? Do they have to ask Jesus into their heart? The year 2013 proved to be decisive when the book Stop Asking Jesus Into Your Heart was injected into the mainstream evangelical media. The book landed like a bombshell across the American evangelical landscape, especially among Southern Baptists, because it argued that telling people to ask Jesus into their heart gives them a false assurance, since it doesn't require a radical transformation like the one that Jesus calls for in John 3. The book ignited conversations all across the nation, and it fronted the question, how can someone be born again? Perhaps you've come here this morning and you have the same question. And if you listen to mainstream media, you'll see that they say that there's a difference between someone who is a born-again Christian and what they might think of as a regular Christian. So in 2008, the Atlantic Monthly published an article noting this very distinction, that there was a radical difference between a Christian who is born again and a Christian who is not born again. But others view born-again Christians as a voting block a voting block that represent fundamentalist beliefs or conservative ideals or perhaps bigoted ethics, but not necessarily Christianity. When we look out at the nation, to say that there's confusion is to state the obvious. So I ask you this morning, what does it mean to be born again? Are you born again? And unless you think that this topic is unworthy of our time and attention today, you only need to read and reread the words of Jesus in John chapter 3 to understand the critical importance of the meaning of this phrase. Jesus says in chapter 3, verse 3, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That is an exclusive statement. He's mandating that new birth takes place in order for a person to see the kingdom of God, or as many people might say, to go to heaven when they die after they've asked Jesus into their heart. It is a conditional statement. It is universal in its requirement, but it is not automatic for every person. You are not born a Christian. You're not a Christian because you have been raised in a Christian home. It is possible for you to be born again here this morning or not be born again here this morning, but rest assured for every single person in the room right now, You are either born again or you are not born again. And if you are not born again, Jesus says not only that you cannot see the kingdom of God, but also verse 5, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. There is no way for you to go to God's heaven apart from being born again. It is impossible, regardless of how many things that you might do that are morally virtuous in this life. Unless you are born again, you will go to hell. Something must happen to you personally that changes you in such a radical way that though you're a sinner, as our pastor Will said earlier in the service, though you're a rebel who turns away from God in thought, word, and deed, that you are changed into a person who is now granted admission into God's own presence. And Jesus says, unless that happens to you, you will not go to heaven when you die, no matter how many times you ask Jesus into your heart, no matter how moral you are, no matter how smart you are, no matter how rich you are, no matter how affluent you are, no matter what member of church you are, no matter how religious you are, no matter how apologetic you might be for your sin. Not everyone is saved, Jesus says. The promise that everyone will go to heaven when they die is a lie. And this interaction with Jesus in John 3 reveals just that. That Jesus did not come to teach you. He came to save you. And how did he do that? 
To answer this question, John tells us of Nicodemus and his interaction with Jesus. One of the most famous episodes in this gospel. Notice first an inquisitive rabbi, verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. In our day of long titles and bloated resumes, we fail to understand that a short biography often reveals the longest experience. So when John identifies this man as a Pharisee, he means to communicate that this man has studied. He studied in great detail. He studied in great detail, in particular, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. He studied the prophets with such scrutiny that in order to be a Pharisee, in order to be named or admitted into this Jewish sect, he would have had to complete rigorous requirements before assuming the office. The Bible identifies this particular Pharisee as Nicodemus. He was, verse 1, a ruler of the Jews. This means that he was a member of the Sanhedrin, an assembly of 23 to 71 men appointed as judges over all of the people of Israel. This Nicodemus was well-educated. He's well-trained. He comes from a position of prestige and prominence. He comes from an affluent background. Nobody had access to this type of education otherwise. He's been trained in the most elite institutions of his day. This man had authority. This man had power. Decisions were made with the stroke of his pen. People are commanded with a word from his mouth. Lives are altered with an order from his office. And yet John says, verse 2, this man came to Nicodemus by night. The fact that Nicodemus came at night indicates that Nicodemus came to Jesus during the night. And it is a reference to his spiritual condition. In the very same passage, John contrasts the difference between those who come in the light and those who love the darkness. Look at verse 19 where he writes, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. In just a few short chapters, John will also write in chapter 11, verse 10, but if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. John is saying that Nicodemus is living in spiritual darkness despite all of the prestige around his esteemed position. Even this Nicodemus needed to be saved by this Jesus. Friends, the gospel isn't only for drunks and the vilest offender, as we sang earlier. John is telling us that the gospel is for all kinds of people, even people like Nicodemus, perhaps people like you this morning, who look like they have it all together. No one would see from the outside the brokenness within. No one would be able to ascertain that you are a person who stands in need of God. Just like no one would have looked at Nicodemus and thought, there's a needy person. He needs this Jesus to save him. It's one of the most astonishing things in the Bible. It's not just the drunks and the outcasts, the vilest offenders, though Jesus loves them. It's all of the people who we might think are upright and have it all together. And this Nicodemus comes to this Jesus at night and says, verse 2, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. A ruler of the Jews seeks out a peasant son of a carpenter from the backwood town of Nazareth. No wonder John tells us, verse 2, this man came to Jesus by night. What would all of his contemporaries on the court of the Sanhedrin say? What would all the constituents that he represents say? What would people say if they knew that the mighty Nicodemus was talking to this Jesus? What would people say of you? If they knew that you followed a Jesus who was a resurrected dead man and said that marriage was between one man and one woman, that a man is a man and a woman is a woman, that you must repent and believe to enter God's kingdom. Can you imagine it's night, cloud of darkness is there, and now the great doctor of law, who seems to have it all together, seeks out Jesus. And notice how he addresses this Jesus. Nicodemus calls him, verse 2, rabbi. The title on his lips was no accident. 
He knew the son of a peasant carpenter would never be granted formal access to study rabbinic law. He would never have been called rabbi. But he also knew that there was something different about this Jesus. Thousands of people are following this Jesus, flocking to this Jesus, trying to get near to this Jesus, to hear this Jesus. People were saying, he speaks with authority. He's not like the scribes and the Pharisees. Crowds are testifying not only to his words, but to his power. Nicodemus knew that there was something different about this Jesus. So he says, verse 2, Rabbi, we know he comes alone, but he represents a group of people. And he says on behalf of every single one of them, we know, verse 2, you are a teacher come from God. One of the great teachers of the law tells a peasant he's a teacher from God. A teacher from God whose actions John has taught us are not haphazard occurrences. But verse 2, signs. Because Jesus did not come to teach you. He came to save you. Notice second, a theological discussion. Look at verse 2. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Nicodemus begins the conversation politely enough. He acknowledged that Jesus' signs are an indication that he comes down from God. But Jesus brushes aside Nicodemus' niceties. And he gets right to the heart of the issue. Notice Jesus' response in verse 3. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus is not flattered. He does not say, why, thank you, Nicodemus. You are such a perceptive fellow. I am from God, and I used to live in heaven. Jesus is not sweet-talked. He simply gets Nicodemus's attention, and he focuses him on his words by saying, verse 3, truly, truly, I say to you, Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Friends, this most famous statement in John's gospel deserves all of our careful attention and study this morning because your eternal destiny hangs in the balance right now in the midst of this sermon, which is why Jesus underscores the importance of the matter for all of us when he says, verse 3, truly, truly, I say to you. It's not as if Jesus had been saying things that weren't true, and now Jesus decides, you know what? I am the son of God. I need to say true things. The conversation is so important that Jesus actually uses the phrase three times in this conversation and throughout John's gospel to underscore and underline important things that he's drawing attention to. Verse three, truly, truly, I say to you. Verse five, truly, truly, I say to you. Verse 11, truly, truly, I say to you. These words emphasize that Jesus did not come to teach you. He came to save you. He didn't come to impart information so that you ha might have more of it. He came to intervene for your life. And if you want to know about that salvation this morning, then you will heed the words of Jesus in this conversation because in order to understand, you must encounter him. But how can you personally encounter Jesus? He's not here on the flesh. You can't call his office and set up an appointment. Friends, if you want to encounter Jesus, it will be through his word after verse 3, rebirth. Jesus tells Nicodemus a person must be born again if they are to see the kingdom of God. The term translated born again can also be translated born from above. Jesus chose these words to communicate a dual aspect. The point is that being born again is something that only God can do. It is from above. And it results in a dramatic transformation. You must be born again. Jesus comes to Nicodemus and he demands that he be remade by the power of God. No matter your religious pedigree, no matter your educational training, no matter how wonderful your parents may or may not have been, no matter your lineage, no matter your ethnicity, no matter your socioeconomic status, no matter all of the things that you might hold up this morning to other people and say, this is what makes me unique. It's what makes me Raymond Johnson. Here are the things that make me me. No matter any of those things, Jesus says there are no exceptions. You must be born again if you are to enter into his kingdom. Because Jesus did not come to teach you, he came to save you. Jesus' teaching seems simple enough, but it's obvious that Nicodemus is confused. Notice third, a stupid response. Verse four. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Nicodemus is baffled. Nicodemus just does not get it. 
He completely misunderstands Jesus' point about being born again, and he takes the phrase so literally that he crassly inquires, verse 4, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb? Can he get back in there? Jesus' response wasn't what Nicodemus expected. And now all of a sudden, this Nicodemus seems a lot less impressed with Jesus, the wonder worker of God. Because for a man like Nicodemus, entering the kingdom of God did not have to do with the radical transformation of somebody's character. It was participation in a new world order. God would powerfully bring that about at the end of history. For Nicodemus, the kingdom of God was nothing more than a movement. There's a movement that you could join and participate in without repentance. Friends, I wonder if that describes how you thought of the kingdom of God and Christianity. A movement that you're able to participate in without repentance in your life. You can be a part of it without change. You can be a part of it without obedience. You can be a part of it without holiness. You can be a part of it without being different. Nicodemus simply did not understand what Jesus was talking about. He did not understand what he was talking about because he knew nothing of new life from another realm. He knew nothing of the intervention of the Spirit of God. He knew nothing of the need for transformation. What Nicodemus thought he needed was more information. And if I just had all of the right facts, I would be okay. Similarly, friends, Jesus says that your life cannot be reformed. It must be transformed by the Spirit of God. The gospel is not a call to moral behavior change. The gospel is a radical transformation from the inside out so that everything about our lives is completely different because of our faith in Jesus Christ. Whatever the degree of Nicodemus' misunderstanding, Jesus doesn't ease his bewilderment and make it easier for him. He responds, verse 5. Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. A solemn reply by Jesus to a stupid response. And this time, Jesus ratchets up the intensity of the conversation when no one can see the kingdom of God is now replaced with no one can enter into the kingdom of God. Why does Jesus do that when... Nicodemus is just asking another question. Why wouldn't Jesus help him? Because Jesus recognizes that from Nicodemus' question, he's actually trying to defend himself. So Jesus comes alongside and he rebukes Nicodemus for not understanding these things in his role as, verse 10, Israel's teacher. He rebukes him in his role as senior professor of the scriptures as he evokes what Christians call the Old Testament. If you have your Bible, turn with me to Ezekiel 36, or you can just look at page 8 of the program if you have one today. It's the passage that Jesus is making a direct reference to, in which God promises this in Ezekiel 36, verse 25. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. And from all your idols I will cleanse you, And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey all my rules. Friends, Jesus isn't simply ratcheting up the intensity and tightening everything down on Nicodemus. In a conversation where he simply wants to win an argument, he is referring to the spiritual cleansing that takes place in regeneration at rebirth. So he places the phrase born of water in the spirit parallel to being born again to help Nicodemus understand the scriptures that he has studied. And as he does that, he makes clear that these theological concepts aren't new. Jesus didn't come on the scene and start saying things that people have never heard before. Actually, they've been foretold. And Jesus is saying they've been foretold by the prophets that you've studied. They've been foretold by Ezekiel when he spoke of a coming new covenant, a new agreement that God would make between himself and his people when he sent his son in the flesh. And now through the earthly ministry of Jesus, this new birth, this radical transformation is not only a righteous requirement, you must be 
born again. But it's actually a possibility. It's a reality for everyone who desires to be part of the family of God. It is a command. Repent and be born again. And you can be born again because Jesus has come. Jesus tells Nicodemus that while people become members of an earthly family by natural birth, they only become members of God's family by spiritual rebirth. So he emphatically says, verse 7, do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The word must suggests this divine necessity. You must do this. Friends, you must be born again. And you is plural, referring to both Nicodemus and those he represents from the first century now to the 21st century. You see, what was true of Nicodemus is true of all of them and everyone. It's true of you all, or as a good southerner would say, y'all. You all must be born again if you are to be part of God's family. You're not part of God's family because you're a member of Christ Church Westchester. You're not a part of God's family because you contribute regularly with your tithes and offerings. You're not a part of God's family because you preach sermons at Christ Church Westchester. You're not a part of God's family because you're on staff at Christ Church Westchester. You are only a part of God's family when you have been reborn by the Spirit of God. But friends, that knowledge is as useless to you as it was to Nicodemus unless the Spirit of God works on your behalf. So Jesus says, verse eight, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit of God. Nicodemus needed to be made alive. He needed to be, as the old Puritans would say, vivified. He needed to be made alive, but his learning had reached its limits. In fact, all of the learning that Nicodemus had was a barrier. It was a barrier to his understanding of the gospel of Christ. All of the learning was useless unless the Spirit of God worked on Nicodemus' behalf to open his eyes to see and his ears to hear so that his mouth would genuinely profess Jesus is Lord. And unless God did that, Nicodemus would stay dead in his sins. Friends, God's power is clearly seen not by making good men and women better. That's not the mission in Westchester. We're not trying to find otherwise successful good people and make them better people by becoming Christian people so that they use that success for Jesus. We're going out and finding people who are dead in sin and going to hell and calling them to life in Christ because no matter what they have in this community, they must bow before Christ. God's power is not seen in making good people better, but dead people live by the power of God. This is what makes Jesus' teaching to Nicodemus so memorable. And he's trying to call Nicodemus to remember what he studied because somehow in all of his days of learning, he had missed the fact that the spirit blows where it wills. You have no control over God. God alone is sovereign. God alone directs your life. And as many of you could testify in this room this morning, there was a time when you sat in a room like this or perhaps this one, after hearing sermons like this or perhaps this one, and for the first time you saw and for the first time you believed and there were other people who didn't because God moved in a mysterious way. The wind blows where it wills, but you don't know where it will. But you do not know how to make a dead man live again unless the supernatural work of God's spirit comes and opens their eyes and their ears. The spirit of God himself, the Holy Spirit, must recreate and resurrect a man so that he is, in effect, verse 7, born again. Everyone who is born of the spirit is one of those who can accurately be said to be born again or born from above. Friends, this is what true conversion looks like. And it's not just a choice that you make. Jesus said it is the Spirit of God and the Spirit of God alone. The Spirit of God makes dead men and dead women live by the power of God as the Word of God is spoken. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of Christ because Jesus did not come to teach you theological concepts but to save you. And he says the Spirit's sovereign and hidden work in a person's heart is evidence by the effect that it actually has in the person's life. Just as you see evidence when the wind blows outside through the trees, 
So you can see the evidence of the Spirit in the life of somebody who has professed faith in Christ, which means if nothing has changed about your life after your profession of faith to follow Christ, then perhaps nothing has changed about your life at all. If God cannot command you to do what you do not want to do, then either he is not God or he is not your God and you're not a part of his family. Throughout their dialogue, Nicodemus is gradually relegated to the background. In fact, if we read it closely, we realize it's not much of a dialogue. Nicodemus starts to talk and Jesus interrupts him and then starts teaching. And then Nicodemus tries to talk again and Jesus interrupts as he's relegated to the background from 26 words in verse 2 to 23 words in verse 4 to just five words in verse 9 because Jesus didn't come to teach him. Jesus came to save him, but he was an obstinate pupil. Notice fourth, a stubborn student. Look at verse 9. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Unfortunately, the more religious you might be, the more darkened you might become in John's gospel. Here's a man of the highest intellectual capacity. He can learn and he can learn how to learn. A man who had learned by reading the Old Testament for literally decades in his life. And yet he has no true understanding of what Jesus is talking about. It just doesn't compute. It never adds up. It's just like your Mac screen. It just keeps circling around, loading, loading. It never makes any sense for Nicodemus. Jesus' message is still imperceptible to him. The senior rabbi is a stubborn student. Friends, it is possible to study the Bible and read theology and go to church and never really hear or understand what it means to be born again. Jesus' interaction with Nicodemus is proof that religious knowledge does not necessarily bring true spiritual insight, which is why he comes to Jesus with his questions. And Jesus speaks the truth in such a way that actually exposes wrong thinking and moves past it. Verse 10, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Jesus says, Nicodemus, if you think like this, you cannot enter into the kingdom of God. You don't need a teacher, Nicodemus. You don't need more facts, Nicodemus. You need a savior who will do for you what you cannot do for yourselves. But my friends, Jesus' question could be asked of all of us this morning. Have you been coming to church for all these years and you do not really understand these things? Have you read around the Bible and read the Bible and reread the Bible for years and you do not understand the simple truth of how a man or a woman is born again? Nicodemus held a position of authority among the people of God, but his interaction with Jesus reveals he knew nothing of the truth. And how could he? His mind is darkened in his understanding, even though he had read and reread and reread the Pentateuch and the prophets. The Holy Spirit of God had not blown across his dead heart and replaced it with a heart of flesh, a heart that is capable of understanding, a heart that is responding to God's truth. Now, you might be thinking, this is altogether discouraging. How is it possible for me to understand the Bible and know that what I've read, I've understood with confidence. Look at what Jesus says in verse 11. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who has descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness... So must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Once again, the importance of Jesus' words is indicated by his use of truly, truly, I say to you. But these important words from Jesus are not a word of compassion. He doesn't come alongside Nicodemus and say, no problem, buddy. You know, it's all too complicated anyways. You don't need theology. I'll just give you Jesus. It's a word of conviction. He says, if you can't understand earthly things, how will you be able to understand heavenly things? If you don't understand new birth, how will you be able to understand more difficult concepts? But if Nicodemus refuses to believe these elementary teachings, he will never be able to enter into God's kingdom, as Jesus has said. Friends, Nicodemus's inability to understand is evidence that he does not have saving faith. In fact, the lack of change in your life also might prove that you do not understand and do not have saving faith. But the key to grasping Jesus' meaning is faith in a crucified son. So Jesus explains there's a great distance between this world and heaven, and that he himself has actually bridged that distance. It validates his divine stature as the son of God, the one who will defeat death, the one who will return to heaven. And Jesus points to events in Numbers 21 to illustrate his statement. If you have your Bible, turn with me to Numbers 21. 
as we said last week, when we see a passage quoted in the New Testament, we not only need to turn there, but we need to ask ourselves, why does the biblical author evoke this particular passage? And how does this passage substantiate what they are teaching or advance their argument? So as this is quoted, we turn back to Numbers 21 and find in verse 4 the reference that is brought up in John 3. From Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way, and the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people. And they bit the people so that many of the people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and he set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Why does Jesus point us here? Because as God had led the people of Israel out of bondage of slavery into Egypt, he had also led them through the Red Sea on dry ground, and yet the people still complained. They complained against God. We don't like your food from heaven. And they complained against Moses. We don't like the way that we've been saved. They complained with such an intensity that they're actually blaming God for bringing them into the wilderness because they had completely misunderstood what God had done for them. Though they were eyewitnesses of God's power when he had freed them from slavery, though they were eyewitnesses of his power when they had walked through that sea on dry ground, though they were eyewitnesses of his power when they had received bread from heaven, they turned in disobedience and misunderstanding to actually accuse God of evil. Have you ever been there? So completely misunderstood what God is doing in your life that you're actually saying God is doing it wrong. He's evil. This is the wrong way for God to do it. This is not fair for God to do it this way. Are you even now, as a Christian, complaining against God for the way that he's managing the affairs of your life? Friends, if so, it is sin. And Numbers 21 tells us that grumbling is a sin worthy of death. God judges the Israelites by sending fiery serpents among the people when they grumbled. And it seems cruel to us. Why would God, so loving, who loves the whole world, so compassionate, like Jesus Christ, send serpents to bite people? They were in the midst of a wilderness with wild animals around them in danger at every turn. But God in his mercy had been protecting the people as they had been traveling to this land that he had promised them, supplying food for their every need because he had promised, and he always keeps his promises, to bring them to a new land after they had sojourned through the wilderness, after some people doubted his promise and his power. So what happened? God just simply removed the protection from them. And these serpents that were already there were unleashed upon them in a very visible way as a reminder of their sins. But the scripture tells us if they obeyed God's command to now look up to the symbol of their suffering, the bronze brazen serpent on a pole, they would be saved. And now John, many years later, points to this text, and he says that this passage in Numbers 21 pointed forward to Jesus being lifted upon a cross. The symbol of suffering would be the one that they looked to for salvation. It pointed forward to Jesus' exaltation and his death and his resurrection and his ascension. The purpose of the lifting up of the Son of Man is that those who believe Those who look to him would have eternal life. You see, friends, the message of repentance in John's gospel is not turn from your sin. You must turn from your sin. You must repent of your sins. But the message of repentance in John's gospel is look to Christ. Look to him and live. Look on the one who was crucified for you. Look to the one who is raised to death and raised to life. Believe in him. Look to Christ, because Jesus did not come to teach you. Jesus came to save you. One of the best-known conversion stories in history, in the history of the church, occurred on a wintry Sunday in January of 1850. Home from school because of an outbreak of fever, the 15-year-old Charles Spurgeon found himself in Colchester on his way to a local congregational chapel. 
But the snow and the sleet intensified so much so that he had to turn down a side lane into Artillery Street and came to the Primitive Methodist Church. And since his mother had told him favorable things of the church, he entered into the building for the first time to attend for a Sunday morning service. There were no more than 12 or 15 people there. Even the minister had failed to arrive because of the weather. It was the wrong church. It was the wrong congregation. It was the wrong weather. It was the wrong preacher, a thin, gangly-looking man, a shoemaker probably by trade. He announced his text as Isaiah 45, verse 22. Look unto me, and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is none else. Spurgeon later said, he had not much to say, thank God, for that compelled him to keep on repeating his text. (laughs) And there was nothing needed by me that day at any rate except his text. I remember how he said, my dear friends, this is a very simple text indeed, It says, look. Now, looking don't take a great deal of pain. It ain't lifting your foot or your finger. It's just look. Well, a man needn't go to college to learn how to look. You may be the biggest fool, and yet you can learn to look. A child can look. One who's almost an idiot can look. However weak or however poor a man may be, he can look. And if he looks, the promise is that he shall live. And then he went on in a broad accent. Many of you are looking to yourselves but it's no use looking there. You'll never find any comfort in yourselves. Some say, look to God the Father. No, look to him by and by. It is Christ that speaks. I am in the garden in agony, pouring out my soul unto death. I am the one on the tree dying for sinners. Look unto me. I rise again. Look unto me. I ascend into heaven. Look unto me. I am sitting at the Father's right hand. Oh, poor sinner, look unto me. Look unto me, some of you will say, We must wait for the Spirit's working. You have no business with that just now. Look to Christ, the text says. Look to me. The preacher, according to Spurgeon, managed to spin that same phraseology out for about 10 minutes. And then he ran out of everything to say. And he looked at the congregation and he picked on one person in particular, Charles Spurgeon. And he said, young man, you look miserable. Well, said Spurgeon, I did look miserable but I had not been accustomed to having remarks made from the pulpit about my personal appearance before. However, it was a good blow, and it struck right home. The preacher went on, and you always will be miserable, miserable in life, miserable in death, if you don't obey my text. But if you obey now, this moment, you will be saved. And then he shouted at the top of his voice, as only a primitive Methodist can, young man, look to Jesus Christ. Look, look, look. You have nothing to do but look and live. And I did look. I saw at once the way of salvation. I do not know what else he said. I didn't take much notice of anything else or anyone else. I was so possessed with one thought. Like as when the brazen serpent was lifted up, the people only looked and were healed. So it was with me. I had been waiting to do 50 things. But when I heard that one word, look what a charming word it seemed to me. Oh, I could have looked until I could have looked no more with mine eyes. There and then the cloud was gone, the darkness rolled away, and then that moment I saw the sun, and I could have risen an instant and sung with the most enthusiastic of them of the precious blood of Christ and the simple faith which alone looks to him. Oh, that somebody had told me this before. Look to Christ, and you will be saved. Look to Christ. And you will be saved. Spurgeon learned it was a mercy to the Israelites of the Old Testament. And a mercy to Nicodemus when Jesus linked the serpent on the pole to his coming crucifixion. Just as the likeness of a serpent rose above the sinful horror of death, Jesus himself would become the one whom the serpent would bite and kill. And just as those who looked at the image of the serpent would live, so now everyone who looks to the image of the Son of God will have eternal life. Will you look to the Son of God today? What are you looking to that is not the Son of God? What are you trusting in that is not Christ? What are you presenting before God as if it would be enough? Find Christ. Look to Christ. Trust alone in Christ and live. Friends, being born again means You look to the Son of God. You believe in the Christ of God because Jesus did not come to teach you abstract theological concepts so that you might be all more decent, smarter people. 
whatever you may have heard about conversion, how a man or a woman comes to Christ, this interaction with Jesus actually tells you the truth. And if right now, perhaps for the first time, you're understanding with a new clarity, you need to know that that is because the Spirit of God is blowing. And you can come to Christ right now in the midst of this service. Look to Christ, believe in Christ, trust in Christ, hope in Christ, and you will find the mercy of God only in the face of Jesus Christ, the one substituted for sinners. Friends, if you want to know about that Christ, we invite you to believe in him today. And I would love to talk to you following the service. I'll be standing back there by those doors. Find me or find somebody here. Look to Christ because you'll be miserable in this life and in death if you don't. If Jesus' teaching is this straightforward, why is it that some people believe and other people do not believe? John explains. Notice fifth, the cosmic conflict, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Why would God be so gracious to people who sin so greatly? What is the motivation of God to put his own son in danger and ultimately to be given over to death at the hands of sinful men? John tells us it is love. God loves his creation. And though his creatures have rebelled against him, and though Satan's power stands as a constant reminder of their sin, John says God loves his people so much that the Son of God was given for their life. The Son of God was given for your life. He was given for the life of people you think unworthy of his love. He was given for the life of people that you think are worthless and disreputable, people that you would never want to affiliate with. Those are God's people, made in God's image, and the people that God sent his Son to die for. Friends, it's not lost to me, though, that this verse is one of the most quoted verses in all of the Bible, perhaps the best known and most beloved in the Bible. You see it everywhere, even at football games, as football players put it underneath their eyes to distract oncoming linebackers. But this very verse stands as an indictment to our culture because all of us, just like Nicodemus, find ourselves confused. We've read the verse over and over again. We've heard it quoted over and over again but we don't understand it any more than he did. We don't understand its power. We don't understand its meaning because we've taken it out of context and we've crocheted it and hung it up in the bathroom. But friends, this verse does not mean that no matter what you do or how you live or regardless of what you say, God loves you unconditionally. This verse actually establishes the depth of God's love for the world and explains what happened to make eternal life a reality. John writes, for God so loved the world in this way that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. The word for connects John 3.16 to John 3.15 and explains what happened to make eternal life an actuality, a reality. And John says Jesus' death is a revelation of the Father's love. It is the love of God which gives sinners what they do not deserve instead of what they do deserve, judgment damnation, condemnation, conscious eternal torment in hell forever by giving Christ as a death sacrifice for their sins. We read this verse and many interpret this word world to mean all people without exception. The logic goes something like this. God loves every person. Christ died for every person. Therefore, salvation is given to every person. But that's not what the text says. The natural conclusion, if we believe that to be true, that the love of God is non-discriminating in its scope, is that Jesus' cross is both needless and useless. What the verse actually teaches is the motive for God's action through Christ. Negatively, those who do not believe will perish. But positively, those who believe, people who are unlovely and unlovable, people who are sinners, people who deserve damnation and judgment and hell, all of those people, whosoever will among those people, from elite Nicodemus to the Samaritan woman that we will study about, from the blind man and beggar to the thief on the cross, whosoever will will come, will have eternal life because God has loved the world in this way. Friends, if you are a Christian, whenever you question God's love for you, John says what you need to do is you need to go back to John 3.16 and be reminded that God loved you so much in this way. He gave his one and only son to die in your place 
God has proved that he is always for you and never against you. So when the providences of life don't match up the way that you think that they should, when the difficulties of life are more challenging than you want them to be and harder to bear, you come back to this verse and remind yourself, God is for me. God is never against me. He has proven that he is decisively always for me and never against me in Christ. He deeply loves his children. Friends, do you know how deeply loved by God you are? Any parent in the room, any parent in the room with a son, any parent in the room with only one son, imagine giving him up. We feel it there. And imagine so much greater God sending his one and only son, the perfect, matchless, sinless Jesus Christ. Friends, we cannot disassociate, though, this verse from the other verses in John's gospel, like the very next one, verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Again, we fail to understand this word world unless we see the word world itself is already condemned. John writes, verse 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. The world is mankind in opposition to God. The world is not neutral. The world is against God. They stand against him and his Christ. Yet it is the object of God's love and the focus of Christ's mission where we take the gospel of Jesus Christ because everyone in the world already stands condemned before this God and do not believe in the name of this Son of God naturally, there must be a definitive action by the Spirit where they are born again so that each man and woman may believe or trust in the merits of Christ and be taken out of the path of condemnation. Friends, I wonder if you realize that if you're not a Christian here today, you're standing under the condemnation and wrath of God. It's not that you just won't get heaven, but you'll get some other decent stuff. It's that you stand against God and you are under God's wrath and you will perish in a Christless eternity, bearing all of the weight for your sins, the judgment that you justly deserve. And Christian, I wonder if the reason you're so joyless this morning is that you have forgotten to remember that 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 burden is no longer yours. He has borne it completely to the cross. That you might be here and set free because of his matchless love and be able to rejoice with such great enthusiasm and to give freely and cheerfully and serve gladly and compassionately because of all that Christ has done for you. John says that it's true whether you believe it or not, that you stand against God and under his wrath. And in so doing, that you will be ultimately separated from him. But the extent of this word world must be understood in the context of God's common grace. God loves everything that he's made. The psalmist tells us, the Lord is good to all and his mercy is over all that he has made, even though there is a special love that he has for those who trust and believe in his Christ. John six thirty seven. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out a special love. John 15, 9. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love, a special love. John 17, 9. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world. But for those whom you have given me, for they are yours, a special love. You see, the focus of the word world is not so much on the identity of God's people, but on the nature of God's love itself. B.B. Warfield said it best when he said it like this. World here is not a term of extension so much as a term of intensity. Its primary connotation is ethical. And the point of its employment is not to suggest that the world is so big that it takes a great deal of love to embrace it all, but that the world is so bad that it takes a great kind of love to love it at all and much more love it as God has loved it when he gave us his son. John wants us to understand that what is really going on in Nicodemus's interaction with Jesus is far more significant than merely an intellectual battle between two different rabbis because as we've seen, Jesus did not come to teach him. Jesus came to save him. 
Nicodemus, though, is caught in a cosmic conflict, a conflict between truth and error, between life and death, between salvation and damnation. And brothers and sisters, every single one of you this morning are in the same battle. You might not think of church that way, but when you walk in here, there's a battle. And every week you respond to this text. You respond in repentance and faith or deeper repentance and deeper faith or you walk out through those doors and you walk away from it all and you decide I'm going to live the way that I want to live regardless of what this says. Nicodemus is caught in a cosmic battle and this verse reminds us that our world is a bloody battlefield, a war of all wars between God's kingdom and the kingdom of darkness, between God's truth and Satan's lie and the stakes are your destiny, which is why you must rejoice that Jesus did not come to teach you, he came to save you so that the kingdom of God would not be an abstract concept of very relig- for very religious people, but of converted people who see the kingdom of God clearly in Christ. This is why John has placed John 3, 1 through 21 right after John 2, 23 through 25. John tells us that Jesus did not entrust himself to people because he knew what was in them. And then the very first person that he introduces us to in his narrative is somebody who trusted in himself. But Jesus knew what was in there. Jesus could look like we can't look and see what we cannot see. And he knew that this person, though intellectual, this person, though affluent, this person, though well-spoken, this person, though well-dressed, this person, though respected, this person did not know the power of God's kingdom. And that's why I'd like to close our time by reading a few testimonies of genuine conversions of members of this church that highlight that salvation is theirs in Christ. I grew up in a Christian household where faith was an important aspect of life. I recall growing up in the church and my parents sacrificing to send me to Christian school. From a young age, I knew that there was a God. He was real and not a fairy tale. Having attended church, Christian school, and church camp at a young age, I was able to develop a reverent sense of the glory of God and grow in awe of his majesty. It was around this time in late elementary school that I made a profession of faith, recognizing my own sinfulness and that I was unable to be righteous on my own. That is the only way to God, by trusting in the son that he has sent, born of the Virgin Mary, to live a perfect life, and to die a substitutionary death on the cross and his subsequent resurrection and ascension that I can be made right. The grace freely offered to me is what has, been, uh, has brought me from death to life, brought me from death in Adam to life in Christ. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. And now as I grow older, the gospel gets sweeter every day. As John Newton put it, I remember two things, and I am a great sinner and Christ is a great Savior. I put my faith in Christ at a very young age. I would believe I was about age six. I remember talking to my mom in our kitchen about Jesus and what he did for me. The meaning of what he has done for me has obviously become a lot more real for me as I've gotten older. But at age 11, I actually accepted Christ as my savior. I recognized I was a sinner and knew that recognizing and accepting God's grace was the only way to earn eternal life. I wanted eternal life with God. I was excited about it, and then I wanted it for others too. When I was younger, I'm not sure if I completely understood the gravity of my sin. My walk in faith and struggle with sin over the years pointed me to the fact that I am a wreck apart from Christ. I do not deserve what Christ has done for me whatsoever, but by his grace, he has saved me despite my sin. The fact that I am undeserving of God's grace, but he saved me anyways, gives me a desire to live a new and holy and worthy life of the gospel, seeking God's will and looking to love others. My youth group went away to a winter camp with many other churches, and that was my first experience of seeing the large, a large group of people my age worshiping and genuinely coming to learn more about the Lord. I realized that a relationship with God extended past Sunday morning services and Sunday evening youth group events. I left that weekend with what many might call a camp high, but it stirred something up in me. I had a desire to be baptized. 
I desire to learn more about Christ. I had a desire to study his word regularly. And I had a wonderful mentor who I met with weekly. And when I spoke with her about a month or so later, I was telling her of how different I felt. And she commented that she had seen the change in my life. Sometime in the fall of my freshman year of college, a friend of mine and I were invited to a thing called Young Life. We knew it was a Christian group. We were both familiar with youth groups at our churches. And we were quick to say yes to another activity. I had no idea how the Lord was about to change my life through his ministry, this ministry. I ended up going to a Young Life camp that summer after my freshman year of high school. It was there that I first truly heard the gospel and that Jesus didn't want to die to save me from my sin, but that he actually wants me. My heart was captured in all by Christ's love for me for the very first time. As a six-year-old, I repented of my sin and submitted myself to serve the Lord Jesus. I believed the gospel by faith and accepted the forgiveness and redemption from my sinful life that only he offers. Jesus doesn't entrust himself to people who don't see their need for transformation, the radical transformation that he brings. So brothers and sisters, stop asking Jesus into your heart. Jesus didn't come to teach you. He came to save you. Look to him and be saved. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for these, my friends. And I ask, Father, now as we sing about glorious rebirth in Christ, that you would encourage our hearts and remind us of the great depth to which you went so that you might cause us to be born again by the Spirit of Christ. And for every person here who is not a Christian, we ask now that they would look and live, that they would hear and live, that they would be born again and live. Amen. Would you stand and sing?